This is Left Out on WRCT 88.3 FM. Uh, I'm Danny Slater. Uh, Left Out examines um, the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. We call it independent reality-based radio. And um, our webpage is leftout.info. The program is normally co-hosted by myself and Bob Harper. Bob is out of town today. So we're going to have a guest, hopefully a host, a guest host as well as another guest on the air that uh, will join me for the show. And while both of our of our telephone guests are, 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 on, are on our phone lines, uh, we won't be able to take callers. But later on in the show, um, uh, I believe we will be, we'll, we'll be able to take callers. Uh, so uh, first couple of announcements, as usual. Uh, you should listen to Democracy Now! every weekday at 8 a.m. on WRCT. And um, another announcement for the, uh, the week is the, uh, the tremendous demonstration that's going to be taking place uh, in Washington, D.C. against the war and against the Bush administration in general. Uh, the demonstration uh, is taking place Saturday, September 24th. And um, there are a number of links on our webpage, uh, leftout.info, for today's show that you can find uh, specifically, if you go to um, www.pittsburghandthewar.org, pittsburghandthewar, all one word, .org, uh, you'll find links to uh, various uh, things about the demonstration as well as uh, um, the opportunity of taking free buses uh, from Pittsburgh down to the rally on Saturday uh, and then coming back. So they've, they've arranged, somebody has donated uh, the money to cover the bus fares, so they'll have some uh, chartered buses that you can take for free. So I, um, that's something that you might consider doing. There's also a link on the um, webpage to Cindy Sheehan's compelling plea for people to go to Washington and why they should go. So um, I'm... Uh, not sure if our, any of our guests are on the phone at the moment. No, we don't have any guests on the phone. Okay. Uh, well, what we're going to do, um, and I'm hoping that uh, eventually we can get this all straightened out, is um, we have a guest named Norman Solomon, who is a um, prolific writer and syndicated columnist who has uh, written on media and politics for, for years, uh, and has a, a, a column called Media Beat that's been, been up since uh, 1992. So his recent, most recent book is called War Made Easy, How Presidents and Pundits Keep Spinning Us to Death. Uh, it was published in 2005, um, and um, there's a blurb about the book on the website, of course, but um, one of the things the book basically goes through the ways in which the pundits, that is the people who write the op-ed articles in our major newspapers and uh, commenters on TV and so on, that these people are um, figuring out how to sell the wars to um, to uh, the American public so that they accept the wars. And um, the book is organized very cleverly around 17 uh, myths that... Um, that the American people sort of tend to believe, and that the media sort of they, they form a substrate, form a, a an assumption that everybody's um, kind of uh, the basis upon which reasoning and thinking about wars and international policies and U.S. policy and so on. Uh, this the basis is built upon uh, sort of these myths about what's going on, um, and I can go through a list of all these myths now. And the way, but I'll, I'll, before I do that, I'll just say that for each myth, there's a chapter of the book which basically goes through. Um, and just uh, demolishes it based on uh, the history of the wars since the Vietnam War all the way up through um, all the way up through the um, uh, the current war in Iraq. So uh, and there, there's been many many wars, small and large. Uh, the, the, the starting with Vietnam, there's the Bosnian conflict, the uh, the uh, uh, the Panama. Uh, um, um, Oh, there's just been a, there's been a whole bunch of uh, Guatemala. Uh, there's just been a whole bunch of actions um, that the U.S. has been involved in, um, and uh, he they, 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 he he Norman Solomon ties these all together with this very compelling argument about the, the myths. Um, so, for example, chapter one is America is a fail in, a fa- America is a fair and noble superpower. Uh, our leaders will do everything to they can to avoid the war. That's chapter two. Chapter three, our leaders would never tell us outright lies. Chapter four, this guy is a modern-day Hitler. Chapter five, this is about human rights. Chapter six, this is not about oil or corporate profits. 
Chapter 7, they are the aggressors, not us. Chapter 8, if this war is wrong, Congress will stop it. Chapter 9, if this war is wrong, the media will tell us about it. Chapter 10, media coverage brings war into our living rooms. Chapter 11, opposing the war means siding with the enemy. Chapter 12, this is a necessary battle in the war on terrorism. Chapter 13, what the U.S. government needs most is better PR. 14, the Pentagon fights wars as humanely as possible. 15, our soldiers are heroes. Their soldiers are inhuman. Chapter 16, America needs the resolve to kick the Vietnam syndrome. And last chapter, withdrawal would cripple U.S. credibility. So uh, our plan today was to talk to uh, Norman Solomon, and um, uh, apparently he's not on the phone. But on the other hand, um, we also have another guest planned for today whose uh, name is Bernard Giselle. Bernard, are you there? Yes, I'm here, Danny. Great. Um, so I, I, did you hear what I just uh, I just started reading about uh, uh, describing Norman Solomon's book? Yeah. Yeah, because I thought Norman was going to be on the line. In fact, he was on the line a minute ago, but um, I got you instead. <laughs> Sorry. So now, I, now uh, let me just mention a little about, uh, tell you about Bernard. Uh, Bernard is a professor of computer science at Princeton, specializing in computational geometry. Um, but he's also a, um, a written extensively about politics, uh, and his essays have appeared in many magazines, such as Counterpon, History News Network, and many other websites uh, have copied his uh, stories and essays and put them up, and millions of people have read his essays. So um, thank you, Bernard, for agreeing to be on the show as our replacement for Bob Harper. It's my pleasure. So um, maybe you could talk about, well, what, uh, well, I mean, for example, I have links to three of your essays, uh, Bush's Desolate Imperium, Anti-Americanism, A Clinical Study, and uh, the the latest one I have is why the children in Iraq make make no sound when they fall. So maybe you could just pick one of those and um, just try to summarize the point you're making. And uh... okay, sure. Uh, well, <clears throat> let me start talking about Iraq since it's uh, very very much in the news today. Um, now, after a few years, you know, the war has been going on for two and a half years, and we, I think we have a much better sense of why we are at war and where things stand. Uh, it appears, at least to me, that there's a confluence of factors uh, that, on the one hand, the U.S. public, after 9-11, uh, had some sort of lust for blood, a sort of payback time uh, because of the terrorism. It didn't much matter uh, what country they were, uh, we were going to attack as long as it was uh, uh, an Arab country, Muslim country. Uh, at the same time, the government, there was this neocon desire to control the region, now, not to steal the oil, I think that's a misconception, but to control the region because uh, the control of the region means controlling prices to some extent, but in particular it's to keep China and India, those growing countries, at bay because they will need more and more oil. Uh, there's also a sort of naive belief in this sort of reverse domino theory. If you uh, remember in Vietnam, the domino theory was that uh, there was that communism would start spilling from Vietnam on to all of Asia and then the entire world. Uh, which, of course, did not happen. Uh, but here is the reverse, which is that if you have democracy in Iraq, it will miraculously spill to, to all uh, neighboring country. Uh, that, that theory had the support of centrist Democrats, people like Biden and, uh, and Hillary Clinton. Uh, and the third component was the media that simply drank the Kool-Aid about WMDs, uh, the human rights issue, democracy, and so on. And yet people at the center, uh, like, like Tom Friedman in the New York Times, uh, or the Washington Post, uh, whose editorial supported the war, um, uh, outlets that are considered typically left of, left of center, like the Atlantic and TNR, the New Republic, uh, became very vocal in support of the war. Even the New Yorker, for crying out loud, had an editorial by David Rebnick in support of the war. Uh, now, on the AM radio, you had the, the likes of Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and the crazies out there like Glenn Beck and, and the super crazies like Ann Coulter and Michelle Malkin and all that crowd um, that also were sort of agitating uh, for this. Now, on the other side, against the war, uh, it was just the wilderness. I mean, there were some blogs like Hitrios, Demikos, mm-hmm. and so on. But So it was a complete, complete lack of balance where there's basically this enthusiasm for the war. Now, today, things are a little different because people in the center who never quite believed that, well, I mean, they're all sort of ambivalent in trying to hedge their bets. Now, 
you start seeing this meme being developed that it's a war on the cheap. I mean, I love that word. It's the $300 billion. This is what? This is about 10, 20% of the entire U.S. budget, and that's on the cheap. Uh, so they're trying to find excuses to why they signed up with such a glorious bunch of incompetent buffoons, and they're basically trying to cover their asses. Um, so what do you want? I don't want to yeah. talk nonstop. So well, no, should, uh, let me interrupt uh, you for a second. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, was great. But let me mention that I believe we have Norman Solomon on the line. Is that correct? Hi, I'm here. Hi, Norman. Uh, did you uh, did you hear uh, what Bernard uh, said just a second ago? I was able to hear the last couple of minutes. Okay, good. So we're all we're all set with uh, our three uh, three three of us talking, and uh, we can all hear each other. Um, so uh, yes, I, I you missed the part where I introduced your book and introduced you a little bit uh, at the very beginning of the show, and I, I read all the titles of your of the chapters of your book, Norman. Um, do you have any specific thing you, you did? If you heard what Bernard said, maybe you could, uh, if you want to comment on what he just said. Yes, well, I think it makes a lot of good points. And uh, I, I like the expression, drank the Kool-Aid. I guess in this situation, they were glad to administer the Kool-Aid to other people since the uh, editorialists and all-around smart guys in the um, offices of the New Republic and the New Yorker and the Washington Post and after fashion, the New York Times as well, um, we're very willing to see other people go off to their deaths and kill other people uh, while they sat and uh, explained the nobility of the cause. But now we are, of course, in a situation where, as usual, when a war does not go according to the promises, uh, some in the elites who formerly supported it are getting very restive and somewhat unhappy and I think our task is now to insist that it's not acceptable to have this war continue while the argument is made, gee, we have to gradually disengage. That is very reminiscent of the Vietnam War, and it should just not be acceptable to talk about gradualism here. Yeah. Uh, there was a very interesting editorial um, that I have a link on, on the webpage by William Odom. He's a general... Um, he wrote an article, I don't know, a week or so ago. It appeared in our local newspaper here in Pittsburgh uh, on the Sunday, in the Sunday paper, uh, saying the same things that you've been saying for, for, for a long time. And uh, just very con sort of puzzling through why, explain, explaining that he lists all the myths, and not, well, not the myths, but all the so-called problems that would occur, the arguments against pulling out. He goes through nine arguments, and he, and he d demolishes them one at a time. Uh, things like um, it would leave a civil war, we would lose credibility with the world, it would embolden the insurgency and cripple the move toward democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, talk of deadlines would undercut the morale of the troops, um, and so on. Yeah, I'm sure it would undercut their morale. Hey, you get to go home. That would that'd be yeah. really a morale killer. Jeez. So um, the very last paragraph, or last section of the, of the, art, of the, the article, it says, so why is almost nobody advocating a pullout? And... Um, we face a strange situation today where, where few, if any, voices among Democrats in Congress will mention early withdrawal from Iraq, and even the one or two who do will not make a comprehensive case for withdrawing now. And so he, he goes on to ask why they're, they're, they're do, why they're not doing this. Maybe you guys can comment on this, your own opinions. Norman, well, it is boilerplate. I mean, unfortunately, with all the differences, and I agree any geographer is going to agree that uh, Vietnam is not Iraq, but the U.S. is the U.S., and the response is very similar in terms of those rationales that you mentioned for not uh, withdrawing. Yeah. Um, so his, his, his final bottom line was that, um, I don't believe anyone will be able to sustain a strong case in the short one without going back to the fundamental misjudgment of invading Iraq in, Iraq in the first place. Once the enormity of that error is grasped, the case for pulling out becomes easy to see. So he says basically the thing was a disaster from the day from day one. Um, well, it, it is a disaster, and it, it has been. Uh, when you rely on lies and all kinds of uh, deception to implement a policy, it's usually a very bad policy. So, uh, um, you go ahead, Bernard. Yeah, if I can say something first, let me say hi to Norman. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, of his writing. Um, hi. And if I can plug his book just very quickly because he's modest and he won't do it. 
And it's a great book with, you know, 50 pages of notes and wealth of facts, a treasure trove of information, and it's incredible. And now the parallel with Vietnam to me is very uh, interesting because usually when people make this parallel, they think of the military component, you know, the quagmire, the counterinsurgency, and so on. But in his book, he shows how much more, much more compelling it is than that. There are, for example... I mean, it's uncanny, the outright lies. So you've got the WMD charade, the Tonkin Gulf incident, which now McNamara, of all people, is admitting was a lie. The imminence of victory, you know, the last throes of the insurgency versus the light at the end of the tunnel, the demonization of the enemy, the subhuman monsters, and, you know, we're the most humane fighters ever. Uh, withdrawal would cripple us, uh, our credibility. In the book, there's this great thing with uh, Cannon, uh, before Congress or something, where, I mean, he's saying something uh, which now we hear from, from you know, the same people uh, in charge. And uh, the only problem is really PR. We're winning the war, really, but it's just that the journalists don't know what they're doing. It, it's unbelievable, and it seems like we just can't learn, can't learn from history. Um, well, we've licked the Vietnam syndrome, <laughs> which, means, is, we, yeah, which means forgetting about Vietnam, doesn't it? I... Uh, if I can add something about uh, I, the way I look at it from the uh, Democratic Party, I mean, at least with the Republicans, we kind of know where they stand. The, the, the Democrats, I think, have put themselves in a complete bind. I mean, I believe that uh, it, most of them dread the peacenik label. And I think they've convinced themselves that they've been kept out of the White House for 20 of the 24 years uh, between, you know, 68 and, and Clinton. Uh, because of that label. I mean, Bill Clinton, I, I'm, I'm quoting him. He says, better be strong and wrong than weak and right. Now, how about that? And now, that's the politicians, the, the, top of the, the tip of the iceberg. Now, if you look at the thinkers, okay, the, the, the people in academia or, or think tanks and things like this, uh, on the liberal side of things, well, first of all, most of the think tanks are, and the powerful ones are, right-wing think tanks. Uh, there are very, very few left-wing think tanks. I mean, Brookings is centers, and you can't even call that uh, left-wing. Now, in academia, there are some very deep thinking going on, uh, but nobody listens to them. I mean, you've got people like Stephen Walt and Chambers Johnson and so on. And, and But no, instead, the mental mitches like Richard Pearl are those that we actually uh, mm -hmm. listen to. Now you've got the the legacy of the of the DLC. That's the Democratic Leadership Council, which was which really helped was a vehicle for for Bill Clinton to basically you know triangulate and get to power. Now when you look today at, at that institution, which supposedly represents you know the the thinkers of the the Democratic Party of the future, you've got somebody like Marshall Whitman. Now Mr. Whitman. He worked as a staffer for the Christian Coalition not long ago. He worked with the Heritage Foundation. I mean, just to give you a sense, this, this man is a right-wing Republican at heart. Uh, you've got people like Richard Holbrook, who might have become State Secretary if John Kerry had been elected, you know, who in February 2003 said not invading Iraq would violate international law. Not to invade Iraq would violate. Uh -huh. So, you know, that's the sort of bias that you've got. So, so now, for someone like Feingold to go and say, uh, we should withdraw the troops, takes not only a lot of guts, but he's got no intellectual support. There's no institution out there in the Democratic Party that, that's going to come to his side and rally and provide the intellectual meat for why that's a good idea to withdraw. He's on his own. He's considered like a crazy now by the Biden-Clinton clique. I think that's a big, big problem. Yeah. Let me bring Norman in here again. Do you have any response to what Bernard said? Or, uh... Yeah, I think Bernard's making a very good point. And when you consider how uh, what uh, Feingold is suggesting is rather mild, I mean, getting all the troops out um, almost a year and a half from now, or what, 15 months from now, the end of next year, it's hardly, from where we are all sitting and talking, it's hardly a radical suggestion. It's probably way too slow. But uh, Bernard's quite right from the mainstream Democrat, let alone mainstream media standpoint. It's just considered beyond the reasonable range of discussion. And I think that's you know where we are historically now. We're at the beginning of the fall, and uh, there's going to need to be enormous grassroots pressure generated uh, before people in Congress are willing to move, because they're certainly not going to move uh, by their own volition. 
There was a comment in this Odom article about about Kerry saying that the presentation um, that, that he presented to the public didn't make any sense. That he thought the war was the wrong time, the war, uh, the wrong war at the wrong time in the wrong place, and we're going to have to send in more troops. Yeah, I mean, I mean his position Kerry, was logically. Biden is saying similar things, and uh, uh, the supposed uh, maverick Republican. Um, McCain, Senator McCain, is saying something similar. This is just a suicidal, well, it's, no, it's a more of a murderous approach, and it just it makes no rational sense. So one thing that I've confuses me, uh, this is a little bit uh, tangential to what we're talking about, but um, just occurred to me that, you know, how, how do people get for, to, the, to this point of view, the point of view that all of us three share, uh, the right point of view, of course, um, how, how do we get to this point of, of being able to see through the, the media and, and the superficial uh, things that, w- that, that we get presented with on TV and stuff and, um, and, the, and the regular newspapers? Um, to me, it was like it was actually during the full, first Gulf War where I just started seeing what I thought were inconsistencies in the coverage, stuff that just didn't make any logical sense. So... I went outside of that realm, and I started get reading the Nation magazine and, and uh, getting involved in other media, and then, then started things started falling into place, and I started making sense out of all of this. But it sort of had to be, it was sort of like a discovery that I made by my, myself. It wasn't like somebody came to me and said, you know, the re- what you're reading is nonsense, uh, you know, from, you're not getting these facts. Uh, so the question, I mean, it just brings up this question of how, how do people get converted, you know, to... to, to to see this outside of the framework they're stuck in. Either of you could just comment on that. Well, some of that, I mean, that's that's a very, I think, important question, and the answer is difficult to gauge for reasons that include there there is ultimately something mysterious about this. What makes certain people step out of line? What was it in Daniel Ellsberg, for instance, that made him not only turn against the war he worked for and in, but also to release the Pentagon Papers and risk well over 100 years in prison. That's, uh, you know, it's, it, it becomes a rather existential question, but I think certainly some of the factors include just access to information and regular access to different perspectives. Uh, if, let's say, the producers of this program were for a month the producers of every major media outlet in the country, uh, we would have a, a, a pretty pronounced shift in public opinion by the end of that time. And we live in an age of propaganda in a, in a society with important elements of democracy. It really does matter what people think. And what people think is in the crossfire, uh, often a victim, so to speak, of uh, friendly fire, the people on, supposedly on our side who are destroying thought as much as they can. Because uh, while we are told this war is some kind of exception, which, you know, every war is, different than every other war in that it's not identical, different countries, different contexts to some degree. Still, this war is not an anomaly in the sense that we have a militaristic culture, the news media uh, have a default position to back any president who wants to go to war, and so in that context, that's the point. Uh, The context of everything going on is uh, a society that has uh, corporate militarism uh, at its core, and uh, along with various other uh, forms of putting profit over human well-being. So that's the context we're in, and mm-hmm. uh, this is not an exceptional war in that sense. It is very typical. It just happens to be one like Vietnam that cannot be won by the U.S. government, and which is transparently based on deception, which is uh, more the rule than the exception. If I may, I'd like to ask Norman a question as a, as a media critic. How does he see the, the impact, the influence, and the future of the blogs in somehow maybe shaking this, this journalism world or, or not? What does he think? Well, he think? I, I think that the, the blogs and the Internet and websites and so forth in general um, have been, as you said, able to shake up the um, status quo of news media. Uh, of course, there are blogs that run the gamut, and uh, if we're going to do a content analysis, I'm sure there's just a whole lot of blogs that are uh, just as uh, as filled with uh, pro-war propaganda as 
uh, much of mainstream media. But still in all, the, the uh, capacity that people have, often from the grassroots, to challenge the mainstream media assumptions, I think is really key. And we can you know, take an example of how the Downing Street memo was publicized in the British press in May of this year, and it took many weeks to get across the Atlantic to some semblance mm-hmm. of mainstream media coverage, as uh, inadequate as that ultimately was. But it took many weeks for that to even happen. And I think we could make a strong case that it mainly happened because of the bloggers and the progressive use of the Internet that, um, in a way, dragged the mainstream media in this country uh, against their initial judgment to at least give some publicity to what the memo was. So I, I think, you know, 30 years ago, it would have been much tougher to even expose what the Downing Street memo minutes were. Yeah, um, yeah if I may say something. Um, um, yeah, one thing, actually, I'd like to have the uh, opinion of both of you is uh, your your view on two things that now really have struck me, and maybe they've happened for quite a while, I just didn't pay attention. Number one is, when you listen to the right-wing, to certain right-wing outlets, not all of them, is the unbelievable coarseness of the of the discussion, if you can call that discussion, and there's just hate-filled prose. Now, in European history, you have to go back to the 30s, the late 20s, the 30s, where mainstream papers use language which is of unbelievable violence against ordinary people, you know, uh, against ethnicities they don't like. And now we have a sense that we're going back there, okay? I mean, the, you know, the, the targets are different, but there's somehow it's permissible now to, to use unbelievable language. You mean the like things ad, like... And culture uses language that's basically what the what the Nazis used, you know, uh, in the 30s. I mean, this is a, that, that sort of level where she says, if only Timothy McVeigh could have blown up the uh, New York Times building instead of, you know, the Oklahoma thing. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe that's her idea of a joke, but for many people that's not very funny. And, uh, and people who were saying things against the Jews in the 30s, maybe also they thought, hey, here's a joke. It's just not very funny. And so now you hear a lot of, lot of that, and now it's just, it doesn't shock anymore. And people say, yeah, that's, that's the way we talk. Mm. I find this really frightening, that uh, there's not this self-censorship about, uh, about hate. And the second thing, uh, which comes from the elites, which also I find absolutely appalling, is this sort of nostalgia for empire. So if you read like someone like Neil Ferguson, or, and there are others like that, uh, they present the... British Empire. You see, I grew up thinking the British Empire is what led to Nazism. You know, this concept that you know certain races are just superior to others, and you just draw the consequences. But now, no, no, I was all wrong. I was completely wrong. No, no, the British Empire was an altruistic project. And mm. The concept is that those poor people are much better off being third-rate citizens in our society than they would be being first-rate citizens in their society. And a lot of people are saying, yeah. Yeah, and that sounds about right to me. And that also I just find simply absolutely uh, shocking. So I don't... Yeah. W- what do you guys think? Well, yes, I... Well, let's see. About about Coulter, I think what's what's funny... Well, she's just one of them. But what I... What struck me uh, recently was that she was on the cover of Time magazine. Right. She's a very flattering picture and an article about her. And, oh, she's so controversial. And But overall, the article was, you know, very in a way, favorable. I mean, you're covering her as though she's a legitimate, you know, uh, entity, the legitimate uh, voice in the, in the discussion, quote-unquote. And and that's what I find, you know, I find that weird. I find that it's, she's not legitimate. She's she's just, she's she's a nut. She's off-scale. She's, her, it, she writes garbage. And, and, and she shouldn't get any, she shouldn't be, she shouldn't be on the air at all, first of all. But given that she's on the air, a, a sort of reputable magazine like Time, Shouldn't be giving her this laudatory, uh, you know, article. And I, I, I showed it to my dad, and I was complaining about this bitterly. And he said, "Oh no, no, they have to do it because you know she's famous." And and so that was his uh, his response to that. Do you have any comments about any of this, Norman? Yeah. Well, um, in terms of Ann Coulter, she's factually challenged. She just gets her facts wrong so routinely, 
And there is a media culture, um, and I think it's been largely uh, nurtured by the Reagan era, that it was seen as charming to get facts wrong. And certainly the uh, right wing has a sort of special dispensation. Well, And you have some journalists fondly writing after when Reagan died. Yeah, you know, sometimes it was endearing, we were told, that he said stuff that was just factually false. This is true of George W. Bush when he said things uh, such as, you know, the uh, weapons inspectors weren't allowed to do their jobs. This was after the war, that they couldn't do their inspections in Iraq. And there were these media enablers who said, well, you know, he's under a lot of pressure and thus and so. It's tough to be president. So getting your facts fundamentally wrong is okay. Well, if it's all right for the president to be factually wrong, why not some pundit who's obviously uh, a publicity hound to begin with? So that is really related, I think, uh, to both points Bernard was making, because, first of all, you have this huge proclivity to advocate massive violence. People who are subjected to the violence are objectified as not worthy of any humanistic concern. So you had, after 9-11, people like Rich Lowry from the New Republic saying, you know, we need to bomb them back into bomb them to basketball courts, whatever that means, uh, to simply destroy another country. It hardly mattered which one, if it's Syria, Iran, Iraq. It was secondary. Just somebody's got to die tonight, a lot of people. Uh, and so that kind of ethic, uh, to, to use the word uh, advisedly, that kind of ethic really is uh, startlingly acceptable across a wide range of mass media. It's considered to be just another opinion, whereas if you offer the opinion that I do that George W. Bush is a war criminal, that is much less acceptable in the mass media. Yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's a very good point. I mean, Newsweek had to retract their story of the Koran and, um, in Guantanamo, if you remember. So they admitted some factual error, whatever, they retracted it. But it's interesting that what Norman is saying, all these falsehoods, which have never been retracted. I mean, Cheney still talks uh, about Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. I mean, like they're like pretty much the same things, which has been factually disproved by everybody. And so, um, or Judy Miller, uh, who's, uh, we're supposed to all be sort of crying, you know, oceans of tears because she's in jail. Uh, but never mind, never mind that for months and months at a time she filled the front page of the New York Times w with imagined, uh, you know, uh, nonsense that uh, Chalabi and her friends were uh, yeah. giving her, and uh, it's simply you know, right. Yeah, we've we've discussed this whole thing about the fact the fact based sort of fact based. Uh, analysis or evaluation of of, of 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 pundits and so on, and, and, and we've discussed that and left out. And, and I proposed one time facetiously having a rating system for pundits, and that if they get too many facts wrong, their rating system, their rating goes down like a chess rating. And uh, everybody could see their rating next to them; they get a negative rating, saying that basically you have, it's it's likely that anything you read in this column is false. Um, but that then of course doesn't happen. There are no consequences for these these guys, the Novaks and the Crowdhammers and the uh, Friedman's uh, writing stuff that just, you know, turns out to be false. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a key yeah. point. I mean, in terms of accountability, we know that Bush says he takes responsibility over basically what was a, a lethal policy towards the hurricane. Um, and at the same time, what about the editorialists at the New Yorker or the Washington Post or Judy Miller or these institutions? There is no accountability and there is no sort of real remorse. And that's one of the notable things about our news media, about our power structure, glorying in our democratic discourse. The consequences of these advocacies are so deadly for so many people, even when that reality becomes incontrovertible, at least conceptually, in the media, where is the accountability? There really is none, and there seems to be a distinct lack of remorse in terms of what the consequences have been. Mm -hmm. Well, your book, of course, one of the services, one of the things it does is it brings up, it brings up all these old analyses from all you know the last 30 years and, and shows how all of these things have turned out to be wrong. You, you, you have done a great job of sort of reminding us of, of those things that happened. Well, thank you. I mean, I think there is this Orwellian uh, memory hole that 
quite conveniently swallows up without a trace information that, uh, in retrospect, really points up, you know, just the pattern of deception, which is part of what we call political life and media coverage in this country. So, uh, Norman, I don't know if you have if you can stick around any longer or if you have to, to run off. Well, I have another uh, 10 minutes here. Okay. Um, well, what other things uh, do we have to talk about here? Uh, we've, we've covered uh, a lot of the stuff that we uh, we have on our, our agenda. Um, Bernard, do you have any yeah, other? Yeah, well, while Norman is here, I want to take his brain and try to see. Uh, I'd like to hear his view on. Um, so, you know, you, you remember, or, well, I remember reading it, not in old, but Walter Liebman used to refer to the manufacture of consent that. Uh, the, the, the media, there's a sort of force towards some kind of center, some kind of consensus that we can all. Uh, and now there's the question of where that consensus is. Now it's way out to the poor or right, and, and things maybe will shift. But let's discuss not about the position of the center, but the fact, I mean, how much is still true, this is still true, or is that going to change? The fact that somehow you read Time magazine, you read Newsweek, and you feel like you one, they're like the same jello, basically. It's, uh, um, so what's your view on that? Yeah, I think that that's a point well taken. There is apparently some kind of entity in U.S. media and politics that we, we could call the center, maybe the center of gravity or the center of non-gravity, uh, center of unreality, but it is uh, kind of the uh, agreed-upon fulcrum, at least moment-to-moment, of where... Uh, the uh, the range of opinion kind of converges uh, into the into the kind of the balanced view, and that balanced view is always wrong. I mean, it is virtually always wrong in retrospect in terms of protecting human life or uh, finding positive results out of the policy and so forth. And I think it was uh, of all people Henry Miller who said uh, the trend is always to nowhere. And in U.S. politics, the trend in terms of foreign policy, I would say, um, is usually very destructive. And so for those who are outside of the consensus-building apparatus, it's really a challenge, you know, not only to critique it, but without seeming to be just kind of a, you know, perennial naysayer, to point out that the very assumptions upon which these policies and these punditries are based are really fallacious. Uh, you know, the prerogatives to build empire, as, as Bernard was talking about, the uh, belief that without saying so, might makes right, which is a convenient belief to have when you can utilize the Pentagon. Uh, we're living in a country that uh, deals out huge quantities of violence and calls it patriotic, and that is part of the essential problem that we're facing. Yeah, I, I was, when you were talking, I was reminded of... Uh, Gary Webb, who um, who tragically committed suicide not long ago, and and here's somebody who should have gotten a Pulitzer Prize and for uh, you know for revealing the CIA shenanigans with drugs and stuff, and which now the CIA has admitted was true, and he was basically cast away. I mean, he was right, like, uh, and this is just so tragic. Yeah, we we talked about that. Oh, um, okay. Well, not not in, the, in this program. Thank you, thank you for reminding me of that. But we did the, have a nice discussion with uh, Robert Jensen, who's a professor of journalism at Texas, about that case and other cases in which uh, journalists have been who who have tried to dig up the unpleasant truths and, and expose them have gotten into big big trouble and for their whole careers and and in fact in this case his life. I mean, if you look at really serve as as kind of object lessons, unfortunately for. Journalists who, like other people, have their mortgages and their careers that they worry about. And when you see what happens to journalists who step out and don't have uh, solid corporate ground underneath them, it's rather chilling, as the saying goes. Yeah. Bernard, you were going to say something? Yeah, no, I was saying that uh, I spent quite a bit of time, probably too much time, reading uh, the, the British newspapers. and. What strikes me is that if you read, like, The Independent or The Guardian or something, they will occasionally have voices 
that do not represent whatever Garden's center of gravity is, they're way out from whatever directions, but somehow they don't mind having, like George Galloway has been writing in The Guardian, like that's his own newspaper, and, and clearly the, the, the editors of The Guardian are not George Galloway, you know, uh, 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 fans, and so, but you would never see Chomsky writing in the New York Times, I mean, or, right. <laughs> I don't know if that ever happened, but no. you see my point, that the people they invite are, are just within some epsilon distance from some kind of a non-threatening center. I think that uh, the one one exception is Krugman in the New York Times. Uh-huh, he's, yeah. he's, he's sort of been pushing on the envelope uh, a lot. And well, I, you know, one thing that's happened with uh, Krugman, I think, is that he was hired a few years ago to do a column at a time when he was denouncing the protesters against corporate globalization. That's right. He yes. was quite scathing, and uh, I think traitor. that the, the politics have changed somewhat, just to, just as they have with people like Jeffrey Sachs, and not by all, all means, any means, all of these advocates, but but some of them anyway have um, at least tempered their view towards corporate globalization. NAFTA and and the World Trade Organization not being touted as uh, the miracle organizations that they were even five or six years ago. But more than that, just the, the extreme corporate militarism and mendacity of the Bush administration has driven people like Paul Krugman into a, a very, um, you might say, caustic oppositional view towards the people in charge of the U.S. government right now. And as a result, I mean, he is, I believe, as is Bob Herbert, much more than even the New York Times management bargained for. And I would Mm -hmm. um, guess that if uh, they, in hindsight, could understand where Krugman and Bob Herbert would go, um, perhaps at least one of them would never have been given a regular column, because once they have it, it's very tough to take the column away from them. Yeah, well, they may be actually contractually obligated to continue it. I don't know how that works. Or if it's just a year-by-year thing. That, uh, well, I'm sure they can dump the column off the page. They might have to pay out some money for a while. Uh, but I think the constraints are more just in terms of how bad it would look to pull yeah. the plug on a particular regular columnist. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Norman is, is absolutely right. I mean, in the case of Krugman, I know that he was essentially hired by Tom Friedman, who, who said well, look, we need some economic expertise we don't have in the op-ed page. So this guy's going to be perfect. He's going to sell globalization, which is Freeman stuff, and that's going to be beautiful. Well, it didn't quite work out like that, <laughs> and I think they're probably like... <laughs> <laughs> he turned out to be a little a little too smart, and not just in, in economics, but in, you know, reading the, 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 all the other, all the other um, you know, junk that, uh, that's been, uh, you know, analyzing it very deeply, perceptively. Um... Okay. Well, you know, uh, speaking of Friedman here, uh, there was um, a lot of uh, material that I, I ended up looking through uh, that I put in the War Made Easy book. Uh, the, the worst things you can say about Friedman are to quote Friedman years later. Uh, what he has said is more of an indictment of him than anything I or anybody else could say. Uh, when he kept repeating the mantra, uh, give war a chance, when he had this. Uh, Lee and his columns about bombing places like Belgrade, including civilian areas. And I, I wrote a piece a few months ago, and I, the title of it was Thomas Friedman, Liberal Sadist. And uh, it's very much an apropos way to describe what his politics are, how he presents his point of view, and the fact that he is lauded across the board almost of mainstream media as this visionary humanist really tells us something about just the extent to which our media establishment thrives on uh, murder and mayhem as uh, financed by U.S. taxpayers. Hmm. So uh, we're talking to uh, Bernard Giselle and Norman Solomon, and that was just Norman talking about his uh, new book called War Made Easy, which I highly recommend. Uh, we uh, we will ta- be taking calls in a couple of minutes. Uh, if you want to give it after Norman hangs up the phone, because we can't take uh, we can't take a call while there are two other callers already on. So, um, Norman, uh, I guess maybe we'll close it off so we give the listeners a chance to give us a call. Uh, and Bernard and I will stay on the line and um, take hopefully take a call or so. Well, I appreciate the chance to to speak with both of you on the air, and um, hopefully we'll be in touch again. 
Yeah, thank you very much for doing it. Yeah, thank Thanks. you, Norman. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Left Out on WRCT. Uh, we can take your calls now. The person you called is no longer on the line. Okay, you can. Thank you. Um, uh, so uh, the uh, you can take our calls at four one two two six eight nine seven two eight. And uh, we've been talking to uh, Norman Solomon, who is, as I said, has just uh, released a book called War Made Easy. And also um, with me uh, on, the, on the line is uh, Bernard Chazelle. Uh, and you've been listening to both of uh, both of them talk uh, for the last uh, 45 minutes or so. So, uh, Bernard, you, um, you've um, maybe maybe we could go back. Well, if you have some other thoughts, go ahead, or, or we could just talk about uh, one of your essays or, or something else. Yeah. Well, I mean, just I'll add a quick thing to uh, uh, Norman's comment about Thomas Friedman. It's uh, besides being a sadist, he also is a kind of person who gives racism a really good name. Uh, he uses language that people might not notice. Uh, you don't see is is just uh, obnoxious and racist. I mean, he'll say things like, "We just adopted a baby called Baghdad, and this is no time for the parents that's us to get a divorce." Um, I mean, Lord Curzon of India, you know, of the Raj, could not have talked in such condescending manner toward people uh, in a place which is the birth of civilization, and, and who is this Thomas Freeman to talk like that? Yeah. And he's talking constantly reeks of his condescension, like, we have found the way, and I will help you out, you idiots, uh, funny too. It's, and people love to hear this, because it's very flattering. It's very self-flattering prose, uh, but it uh, reeks of racism, in my view. Hmm. So, uh, one of the things that's, uh, that's come up in the last few weeks with the Katrina disaster, um, there's been, well, of course, that was presented on the mainstream media that we've been talking about and, 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 and you know, painful detail about what's what's been happening there and also about what became obviously, you know, a, a situation with uh, a huge number of, of poor people, mostly most of whom were black, uh, and uh, the, 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 you know, the terrible situation they were in, and everybody could see that on their TV sets. And um, this has caused, you know, additional strain on Bush's poll numbers. And um, the media says, seems to have woken up, at least briefly. Uh, and one of the... I, 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 what do you think is going to happen in, in terms of uh, the media's ability to criticize the administration? Is that just going to disappear and it's going to return to, you know, business as usual? Or are we going to get, get some sort of backbone at this point yeah my predictions usually turn out to be wrong so <laughs> uh, okay. but certainly i certainly agree with you that the journalism was different because you had people like the anchors of the main networks were on site and they were seeing with their own eyes i mean take someone like tucker carlson who was a right-wing guy and there he was in tears you know seeing these poor people and so the hearts broke because it's easy to be a tough guy in a studio that's air-conditioned in New York. It's different to be there in the mud and seeing those poor people dying. And I think there are a lot of emotions that came that was very spontaneous and very authentic and very real. And I think people connected to that. So when Bush then comes you know, on Air Force One and looks and so on, he says, oh, everything's in control. People say, wait a minute, give me a break. I mean, we saw what actually happened. Whereas mm -hmm. in Iraq, we never saw the dead. We never saw the dead of, of, you know, everything was certainly not the American dead. So there was this filter in Iraq which, which did not exist in New Orleans. Now, how much that will change, I really don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's some, one of the things that I think makes me a little different from... I mean, we, were, we were talking a little earlier about what... Uh, you know how we ended up. At least I ended up in in a sort of a different worldview than the you know the typical person. Uh, uh, and I felt sort of there was a change occurred in my own life. But I think I have more empathy. I mean, I, I have more empathy for things that are abstract. I mean, you, statistically, you, you know, statistically, you can see things. If if you have a lots of if if there's, some people, I think, can't be moved by statistics. Right. You can't say, look, there. This is the average income of a, of a person. Or this is the poor. How much poor people make? What is that like to live in that? And that's under those conditions, or uh, you know, homeless people, and so on. I mean, there's, there's. 
Um, you know, I guess I'm a bleeding heart liberal. But that's. <laughs> I think I have some some degree of empathy that I don't need to see the person dying in front of me to have a, a strong feeling. If you show me a statistics that shows this is happening, yeah. I can respond and say this needs to be dealt with. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I think for lots of people, they actually need to see it. Because I think there's a, something I address in one of my essays, which is the very strong American mythology. I mean, this country is built around uh, symbols, you know, the flag and, and uh, you know, some mythical history. And uh, so the people are presented choices, like, do you agree with the war or not, based on myth. So almost whatever they think is almost irrelevant to what's actually happening because they're answering the wrong question or answering the question based on facts which simply are not true. I mean, if you were to tell them, uh, is it okay to fight the war in Vietnam where we're going to have 58,000 killed and two million, over two million Vietnamese will die, if they actually really knew that, then they, would, they might actually think, well, I'm not sure that makes a lot of <laughs> sense. But that's never presented like that. We were... I mean, recently, John McCain was talking about Vietnam, and we were liberators in Vietnam. We just helped them out so much. Uh, yeah, we also killed two million, which mm. is a third of what the Nazis did to the Jews. And so we never talk about that because, because that, that's not us. Or when something bad happens, it's an aberration. So my lie is a good example. My lie was publicized because it's a big massacre and so on. But, of course, it was nothing compared with the daily massacre that happened during the entire Vietnam War. But we don't talk about that. So we talk about those horrible lieutenants that did horrible things. It's like Abu Ghraib is the same thing. Uh, we find a bunch of losers and at the bottom of the pie and say, yeah, they did it all. And then we're okay because everybody makes mistakes. And we make, we make mistakes, too. But it never challenges the core of the enterprise, right. which is, well, maybe, maybe that's part of the deal, you know. Um, so... Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're just about uh, running out of time here. Um, I uh, just I'll summarize a couple of things. The announcements we made at the beginning. Uh, one thing is this demonstration in Washington on uh, Saturday, the 24th, this coming Saturday. Uh, if you're in, living in Pittsburgh, you can take the free bus uh, to Washington for the demonstration. Uh, go to www.pittsburghandthewar.org. Uh, to find out about how to get a free bus. And um, I guess uh, that about wraps up the program. Thank you, Bernard, for you uh, being much, on Danny. the show. Uh, we'll be putting up uh, the audio files for the show on our leftout.info website probably the next uh, week or so. And um, we'll see you again in two weeks. Have a nice time. Bernard, are you there? <laughs>